Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it even means anything at all. I'm Pelin keskin Lou, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chishong, a culture writer and critic. And this week we're discussing WandaVision, Disney Plus's first big Marvel Cinematic Universe-based TV show, and Malcolm and Marie, the first big Hollywood feature film to be entirely created during the pandemic. So it's, yeah, a couple of firsts here. Couple of firsts, and also what a dramatic week yeah. for film and TV. Fucking hell. How have you been anyway, besides <laughs> that? Besides all the drama that's been happening? Yeah, and we'll get into that some of that later during Culture Notes. But <laughs> oh, we will. I've been okay. Oh. I... Fuck, banter, man. Banter! What is there to say? <laughs> Every week we open our Google Doc and we, we stare at this line that says brief opening banter. And I gotta tell you, yeah. man, this is probably the hardest part of the entire record. 100%. Um, I've been, <laughs> I just started a call my agent on, on Netflix and maybe we'll talk about it someday, maybe not, but really enjoyed it so far. And I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm so happy you've come to call my agent land. <laughs> I think it's after, it's the best. yeah, you mentioned it. I think when we were talking about Lupin the first time and I was like, yeah. okay. And I got to check that out and seen more hype about it also on like the timeline. Yeah. I, on the other hand, I have been watching Hunter Hunter, the anime. Wait, you were willingly, like voluntarily watching animated <laughs> stuff? So there, there's a really cute backstory to it. When I first started dating my now husband, he was like creating this poster that was based on Hunter Hunter. And I had oh. obviously no idea because I wasn't then, still am not to this day an anime person. Um, but he was just like, listen, it's one of my favorites. It's really good. And I was just like, sure. Aww. Yeah, sure. And then it, we, we just like, ra- like I just randomly was like, oh, they have Hunter Hunter. Like, sh- let's just watch it. Cause we're, we like having two types of shows, you know, like one show that we're really seriously invested in and that we watch week to week. Mm-hmm. And then the other is just like the filler, like that you watch while you're eating dinner or yeah, like, nice you know, around. um, but yeah. And so I was just like, well, we're missing something like that. Why don't we just watch anime? And, um, I saw it and I, I love it, dude. It's so good. It's oh, so wow. good. Yeah. I and it. Uh-huh. I would recommend you and any one of our listeners that don't know anything about it, just go in blind because I basically knew nothing about it. The only thing my husband said was that it was about friendship, which I really needed. <laughs> yeah. And like, I needed that post Ted Lasso. Like, as a fix. Oh, yeah. And it, it definitely provides. It is going to be on Netflix up until March 7th, so there is a deadline. Wow. Okay, we're only, yeah. we only have about a month. However, they have it on HBO Max as well. The problem is that it's dubbed. And uh, if you hate... Yeah, yeah, if you hate dubbed, then, you know, you've got a deadline on Netflix, basically. Right. Yeah. Okay, good to yeah. know. You started watching it. It's like a link of love, and now you genuinely like it. It's all coming full circle, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess that's... Now that we've talked about TV, we'll move on to more TV. Um, oh, tell me, Helen, yeah. what did you watch this week? Uh, so, One Division. I have been wanting to talk about this for a couple of weeks. I, ju- mm-hmm. I guess I just wanted enough episodes in so that I can kind of decide whether or not I liked it. But One Division kind of came onto my radar because there was so much hype around it. Mm-hmm. The reason being, as Jenny mentioned in the intro, it's Disney's first of very many MCU-based TV series. There's going to be a shit ton coming down the pipeline. Obviously, COVID has kind of impeded the release date <laughs> for mm-hmm. a lot of them. 
Uh, but others include Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, Miss Marvel, Hawkeye. Oh I don't God. know what any of these words mean, <laughs> but I'm like, cool, I'll watch them because yeah. I paid for this Disney+. Plus. But yeah, so to give you guys an idea of what it's about, it's about Wanda Maximoff, aka the Scarlet Witch, and Vision, her robot husband. So they are superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wanda's abilities they include, but they're not limited to telekinesis. The ability to alter energies, reality, time, bad bitch, all around. Yeah. Vision's <laughs> abilities include... He's like a robot humanoid thing. Yeah. Like crea- creature, I guess. Um, but he, you know, his abilities include superhuman strength. He can fly, do all sorts of beep, beep, boop, boop shit that I don't really, <laughs> that I don't really know. But I've seen these characters before because I have seen the MCU movies. Oh, you have? Could- all of them? Not all of them, but that, that, like, I'm coming to my point that all of these movies all, apart from, I think the only movie that I'm like, oh, I know that one is separate from the others is Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> and then all the other MCU movies merge into one for me. Uh huh. So I can't remember when I first met Wonder, can't remember when I first met Vision. It's all just like one soup. And of, that is the goal. Like, that is that's the goal. goal. That's the whole point. Yeah. So. To give you guys an idea of what it's about, I can now speak to this confidently because if you asked me in the pilot, I wouldn't have been able to tell you shit because <laughs> it really didn't seem clear. Yeah. We we meet Wanda and Vision as a married couple. We meet them in a 1950s TV sitcom series format and it's all in black and white. H- hang on, don't worry. Color does come into the equation at some point. And they go along with this bit and this format of this 1950s TV sitcom until like obviously there are moments where things just don't seem quite right. And those moments that don't seem quite right ramp up mm-hmm. in episodes two and three. And then in episodes two and three, we have jumped a decade respectively. So episode two is set in the 60s, episode three is the 70s. And then it all culminates up until episode four, where we are then given a clearer picture as to what is happening in the outside world outside of the sitcom. And this sounds really heady, and it makes no sense. But... It eventually will. Like, once you get to episode four, you're given context, mm-hmm. which really helps. But I really liked it. I'm really liking it so far. How, how do you feel about it, Jenny, as, a, as also another person that is not an MCU head? Yeah, and I'd say I'm even, like, more divorced from the context because I haven't watched a single MCU film. Oh, shit. That's yeah. just, like, a huge cultural, like... I just like totally skipped over that. And then at a certain point, there were just too many to be able to sort of like jump in and and catch up all the way to what is it? The what's the last movie that the adventures (laughs) ending thingy? Should I Google it? (laughs) (laughs) Infinity Enders in in, I don't Infinity Stone. In Infinity Ultrons. Ultrons. There's Age of Ultron. I know Age of Ultron. Yeah. Uh, Avengers (sighs) films most recent. Come see this dumb bitch energy right now. I'm so proud of us. (laughs) What's the, okay, what's so the last one the, Endgame. Endgame. Oh, Endgame. Was, okay, I knew yeah, I had an yeah, end yeah. in there somewhere. I know that was a big deal. At that point, I was like, oh, maybe I should, but I didn't. It was too much work. So I still have no context. I don't know. I, I mean, the bit of like context I do have is absorbed mostly through social media because this stuff is mm-hmm. literally unavoidable. But, you know, saying all that, I'm enjoying WandaVision. I'm along for the ride. And although I have no idea what's going on, it's it's a fun ride. It's super fun. 
And, you know, so much of it has to do with the look of it. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I like shiny things. And I realize this. And I've got to say, like, the reason why I even am watching this is because I finished The Mandalorian. And as someone that is also Mm. really not a Star Wars fan, like, I truly am not a Star Wars fan. I I say all of this to say that I really enjoyed The Mandalorian. And it was because it was a separate world. And it was also because it had me invested and it was episodic and it was clean. And, you know, it looked fantastic. It looked like a film. Mm -hmm. And so much of WandaVision is kind of satisfying that hunger that I'm having right now and like nice budget (laughs) yeah really really big big old super budget basically like I don't know when we're all going to be in an AMC next I don't know when I'm going to go pay for overpriced popcorn and watch films like this but because we can't it's just really nice to be at home and to hear that music you know like the intro music it just feels larger than life which I really appreciate and it feels very different to anything else. It feels different from a Netflix show that's really like with a really big budget. It feels different from an HBO show. It's just like it's distinctly Disney and like distinctly MCU, which is really nice. So obviously the look and the feel of it is really interesting, but I wanted to kind of take a step back and talk to you about what this means for Disney as a whole, because I think in terms of the film world, they were already coming under a lot of, well, not a lot of fire, but there was some, you know, critique towards the fact that cinema was just becoming superhero movie after superhero movie. And like, how much of that could they churn out? And, you know, obviously it was because they were making so much money from it, like billions of dollars, right? Every time an MCU movie comes out. Well, how do you feel about the fact that they're obviously pivoting to TV right now with this? Well, I think it was an inevitable move, especially with Disney Plus. Arguably, that's like one of the whole, you know, aims of Disney Plus is to just net together this even wider universe than the one they currently have. Yeah. Um, regarding like the, the kind of critique, and this is mostly coming from like critics or, you know, quote unquote serious filmmakers, um, about Disney and them just like churning the shit out. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely could see that because. Like, it's not just, like, an offense to whatever people's sensibilities, but it actually does, like, affect stuff like which movies get greenlit, what are the box office expectations for these different things that have to go head-to-head against these Marvel films, things like that. This is just kind of, like, step two of that plan, I think, to... To go even further, um, I know us, we don't really have any context for WandaVision. We're not like MCU heads. It probably is better, honestly, if you did watch those films and you're like deep in this universe. Yeah, definitely. And then definitely. like watching this TV series is going to be necessary for like the next two movies they do and stuff like that. So yeah. it just feels like we're in sort of a wider net that's closing around the like film and, and TV and stuff. And I say yeah. that I'm like, I am enjoying WandaVision, but... I don't know how I feel about it, you know, becoming such a, a cornerstone of what people are watching and consuming, not just on like a film release schedule, but now on sort of a week to week basis. Yeah, it's weird because it, it feels like the films obviously knew what they were. Like, I am someone that has seen a couple of, you know, Avengers films. And every time I, I, I came out of it feeling entertained, mm-hmm. you know, because the plot was really easy to follow. The visuals are crazy. There's fight sequences. Everyone's got their own personality. There's like a, you know, the whole ensemble dynamic is really fun. Yeah, that's like a great, honestly, that's like the perfect chemistry and like formula for just like encouraging fandom. Just all of this interconnected stuff. Definitely. Especially as 
certain actors started to get into the fold, like Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Robert Downey Jr. absolutely bodies it with his chemistry with him, like because he's the not the anti-hero, but he's definitely someone that has on-screen chemistry. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is obviously very recently they've started employing certain directors to come and do their own spin on mm. the next Avengers film mm-hmm. you know the reason why Thor Ragnarok really sticks with me is because Taika Waititi directed it and it's funny uh-huh. as shit and it's because he's so like he brought his own like sensibilities to that film the TV thing feels like a continuation of that mm-hmm. uh, in that obviously all these different series are going to be coming out but they're all going to be different kinds of things like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, from what I understand, is like a buddy crime fighting duo. And then Loki's going to be like a murder mystery thriller, like detective oh, wow. type something. So they're, they're, they're moving into the genres of TV yeah, and then they're kind of, yeah, they're kind of like employing their own style to it. It just seems to be like widening as well as deepening. Yeah. You know, which obviously <laughs> as a money making entity, makes complete sense so smart such a obvious strategy super smart yeah Yeah. and they and they know what they are too so you're not gonna really get this from any of the other streaming networks you know like hbo is still going to be making prestige tv netflix is the same netflix is just kind of keep doing what it's doing just (laughs) just growing exponentially it's no end in sight with no real direction and hulu i don't know what hulu's doing anyway so basically (laughs) (laughs) basically like they found their lane they're sticking to it and it's just you know it's just it makes sense like yeah i I don't know what to say like you can't knock the hustle i don't think it's gonna take away from like tv because i think people will still seek those things out um but it's like you said it certainly if you are a fan of this this is super exciting because you are just literally like bear in mind like i'm also not a comic book reader but from the little i know about comic books there just seems to be factions upon factions of just like spin-offs and spin-offs and spin-offs and yeah. like multiple timelines like it's so overwhelming like one thing happened then and then 20 years later they wrote something else yeah, it's and very it's confusing just confusing to me it's very very confusing but like what's good about these tv series is that they are pulling inspiration from all of this so if you're already a fan especially of the comic books the reddit threads are fucking thriving baby like <laughs> oh, I, i've seen some of them cuz i'm oh like my what's God. going on um, no, I have no people idea. Love it. People love it. And people, and obviously, I think with WandaVision, because it feels like they have been pulling inspiration from something called House of M. Don't know what that means. But at the same time, like, even though that inspiration is being pulled, there seems to be a new interpretation of it. So everyone's just like really excited about what the next episode is gonna, yeah. is gonna showcase and like reveal. And I'm just yeah. excited because I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> like every episode, I'm like, oh, so he's doing that? Cool. And I'm like, I don't, I'm never asking why because I know I, I'm never going to find the answer. Like I, yeah. I try to do a, a bunch of like Google searches and There's it's just, just so much. It's just too much. Like <laughs> they just, they are packing this with all of these like references to things, in universe jokes and everything. Like it's, if you're a fan, they are really hamming it up for you yeah you're gonna this is like the ultimate reward and i mean so many things are gonna fly over our heads but yeah even so it's still you know it's still a fun show to watch and i like that yeah. it's slow drip yeah <laughs> which definitely is rare these days definitely so that that exactly like i think even though it's it seems to be chock full of easter eggs for people to kind of find when they're buried and like connect the dots once more episodes come out the thing that i really really appreciate just from like a tv writing perspective 
bear in mind these episodes are half an hour long. It's not even like they take up too much of your time. Perfect length. And they are released week to week, which again, love that. Gives me something to look forward to. There was like a whole debate that was going around between like, should they have released this all in one go? No, I don't think so. I think this week to week is actually really fun because like Jenny said, there is a slow drip. And I can't remember the last time I watched the pilot where basically... Not only did I not know what the fuck was going on, I had no idea what episode two was going to be. In in this day and age of pilots, where they just kind of tell you everything or as much as they can about the protagonist, the antagonist, they tell you what the stakes are immediately, like, you know, because studio execs want to sell a series and they want to make sure that the critics really love the first episode, like the pilot, so that they can, you know, sell the series and then kind of keep it going from there. This had none of that, obviously, because they've got the money. Obviously, because yeah, they know they that they have the same expectations. Yeah, they don't need people to like the pilot. They're already they've already sent it to series. This is already fucking happening. As far as they're concerned, you will sit there and you will watch it and you will like you will eat the fucking food. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. And I just really liked it. I really liked that it basically set the tone, but also and the tone is so important. It's super important because the whole point of you not really knowing what is going on for the first three episodes is the whole point of why everyone is trying to figure out what the fuck Wonder and Vision are up to. Obviously, so mu- again, so much of this has to do with the fact that they don't really need to answer to anyone. They, they already know that the MCU fans are going to be on this, like, you know, flies to shit. But I just really like it when TV makers are able to deliver a series in a way that it was intended like it's not forced everything is just following the natural flow of things so hopefully you know by the end of it it'll be really satisfying or it will you know create loads of questions and and then we'll all get excited for season two oh is there gonna be a season two maybe i guess i don't know anything is possible money like there's there's one thing that my husband said when we were watching it who was just like i really hope that i don't then have to watch a film after this oh that was like if they leave it on a cliffhanger infuriating yeah if they leave it on a cliffhanger and if they do that with all the other series and then like all together now we come to i think the next film is doctor strange god i would hate that yeah i it would be annoying but guess what if they have it on disney plus i'm probably gonna fucking watch that too so (laughs) i don't know i don't know i don't know i think it's just it's just interesting from a like an industry perspective because if that's the case then they're really gambling with whether or not people are going to be back in the movie theaters for this film uh because that's that's the point right hopefully me and jenny will be able to be in the movie theaters for the next mcu film i will take her i'll probably watch everything else first no fuck that i'm going into (laughs) I, i swear to god the second the movie theaters are open i'm going into the first fucking thing that's showing like even if it's like a dog movie for midwestern mothers (laughs) i'm there yeah we'll probably go to the alamo because that was the last mcu that i watched was at an alamo in austin and i got fucking drunk bitch we were like yelling (laughs) it was so much fun that'll be us hopefully next year (laughs) or maybe this winter who fucking knows great so that was wonder vision and for you, Jenny, what will you be talking about this week? Well, I have a very special pick that <laughs> has caused a lot of conversation. So this week I picked Malcolm and Marie, which is on Netflix, mm-hmm. of course. And this is a film that is written and directed by Sam Levinson, you might know from Euphoria. 
um, starring Zendaya, also Euphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where she knows Levinson and John David Washington. So this film, it's, it's a black and white drama about a couple, one of whom is a filmmaker named Malcolm. And the other one is his girlfriend slash muse, Marie. They one night return home after a successful film premiere um, of Malcolm's. And the whole film takes place throughout the course of this one night in this beautiful secluded home that uh, their producers gave to them or rented to them or something like that. And the two basically spend hours arguing and making up again and then blowing up again while going through these discussions and rants and and fights about the film, like the industry, their relationship, and each other. That's that's like the whole thing self-contained here. And and what's also kind of significant about this film is that it was the first Hollywood feature, like I mentioned before, to be entirely written, filmed, produced, all this um, during the pandemic. So Zendaya basically, she went to Levinson, she asked... You know, do you have any ideas or projects that you think you could do during the pandemic? And this is what they came up with. And it was shot on location with a very limited crew, um, a lot of them from Euphoria. And so the crew and the cast had to quarantine, stuff like that. But yeah, this film is proving to be pretty controversial online right now. Um, before we get deeper into it and like into the reasons why it's sort of causing a, a ruckus right now, mm-hmm. I want to ask Pellin, just like top line, did you like it? Yeah, I did, dude. Wow, that's that's this, a bold statement. This is controversial. Yeah. I'm sorry. Fuck you if you did not. No, like I know loads of people disagree with me. I obviously had my problems with it. I think we will get into those. But overall, I felt entertained. It did not feel like a bore to me. I found it to be a little bit interesting, obviously self-indulgent. But then again, isn't every film director self-indulgent? Like, isn't every single film being made, especially if it's written by them, it's just an act of narcissism to some some certain extent. Um, Yeah, I liked it, man. I thought it was, it's fine. Like, I've seen very many films where I've had bigger problems with. What are you going to give it on Letterboxd? Oh, I already gave it a three out of five. Okay. Okay. Yeah, which is like, you know, that's like my, that's my comfort rating for the most part. If I don't want right. to get into, you know, the finicky parts of it. What about you? I know, I know that we were texting last night about it, but what what was your top line? Did you like it? So I'm probably going to give it a 2.5 mm-hmm. out of, out of five. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, which is squarely like, um, not quite a two because I didn't dislike it to that extent, but, I am definitely not as much of a fan of it as as you are. Mm-hmm. I thought there were good aspects. Like, visually, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it was it's shot nice. in 35 millimeter black and white film. And the house, the, the location, like, the way the light and shadows and the, the skin renders on this film, uh, beautiful. Some of the shots, like, I think my favorite, the camera's in the bedroom. And mm. you can see them outside in the window oh, through the window mm. just gorgeous like i think it's the final shot it's just really nice yeah yeah it looks great it looks really good yeah so i like that i found the latter half more interesting but definitely for at least the first half i was like texting Paul. i was like this is i'm bored <laughs> yeah um i found it kind of boring it is very self-indulgent like Helen said although in this case i found that self-indulgence just kind of like insufferable that's it i it, it kind of reminded me of watching mank actually which is another film where mm. you know Helen, you you like that film yeah. i did not like that film that was also in black and white coincidentally it was also kind of 
about Hollywood and the industry. And it also provoked a bit of a unusual or interesting critic reaction, I would say. So Mank was yeah. kind of widely beloved by, beloved by critics, I yeah. think. And of course, that was a film that was about, you know, writing and, you know, how important the, the screenwriter is and, and writing in general is to, to filmmaking. I found that positive critical reception to be kind of overinflated. And in this case, yeah. for Malcolm and Marie, the very negative critical reception it's getting so far is maybe also overinflated in the Agreed. other direction because of yeah. similar but like opposite reasons. It's not bad. Like, I don't, I don't think that. Like when when discussions like these happen, I don't think it means um, if something is critiqued poorly that it means that the thing was bad. It's just like there are things to think about, and I think this is kind of what that's about. A part of me felt like a lot a lot of critics they it hit a nerve because yeah. I think uh, a lot of the arguments that Malcolm makes. So Malcolm is a filmmaker, and he's obviously very sensitive about the incoming reception to his film that just premiered. And it's because he's made a, a film before and it didn't get as good of a reception. And he's like the person that just rants about critics and how much he hates them and how, you know, how much they're perceived. I can, I, I understand as a critic, like you are not, you should not be the enemy of the creator, but creators are fucking sensitive people. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. of course they're going to look for validation they're going to look for acceptance they're going to look for exaltation um so when they don't get it they feel way about it it does feel a little bit overinflated in that is it that serious like that was what was going through my mind when yeah things were things were kind of pouring in it was just like oh like this is cutting but at the same time i don't know why you're cutting this so like the stuff about critics it's kind of almost like bait in a way like it's levinson baiting critics yeah 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 it's totally. like they're responding like this, and I'm sure he's not going to be surprised, and he might even turn around and say, like, see, what I was, yeah. you know, saying in this film about them is true. Um, but the kind of more, the the part that I think could and should be considered with a little bit more of a critical eye is the the nuance of, like, Malcolm, the black character, saying all, airing all these grievances about critics and the, the film industry and Hollywood and stuff like that. You know, he's saying this stuff that is, you know, valid, I think, as, as a point where he's complaining that the work of black filmmakers is always read as political. They have to ex be considered authentic or necessary or, or timely in order to exist and to get this critical praise. Um, all of which is true. I, I think, honestly, nobody can really deny that. But it's kind of funny because it's being coupled with this kind of more ranty talk about criticism where it becomes personal. Uh, Malcolm, like, zeroes in in particular on a white female critic from the LA Times. And yeah, funnily she's, enough... She's like the major antagonist in his... Yeah, un sight yeah. unseen. Just representing everything wrong with the, you know, critics and whiteness and stuff like that. And it's funny because... Levinson, the director and the writer of this film, in real life, he had a film that was negatively reviewed, I mm -hmm. think, and was negatively reviewed by a white female critic from the LA Times. Yeah, um, it was for Assassination Nation. Yeah. yeah, so it's personal for Levinson, and it becomes messy because 
Levinson is white. He's a white dude. And he's kind of airing this personal vendetta through the mouth, like through the mouthpiece of a black filmmaker. Yeah. And like kind of mixing in these like, you know, valid complaints about, you know, how black filmmakers work as red, race, stuff like that with the kind of pettier grudges that presumably Levinson has in real life. Yeah. It just kind of like pollutes like the, I think the more valid critique and also Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. Levinson is, again, like, like this white director. Do you really want to be using, you know, a black character as sort of your mouthpiece for your own personal problems with different parts of this industry that some of which don't even really, you know, apply to you or you don't, you haven't really experienced yourself? It's, yeah, it, it comes off very vapid because, you know, bringing it back to his beef with i think it was katie walsh right uh, from Let the la see. times yeah katie walsh yeah so katie walsh when she reviewed assassination nation her whole thing was like these this film is about a bunch of women it's about sexual violence and it's trying to say something that it feels really heavy-handed and stupid and if sam levinson was a woman then we wouldn't have this film the way that it is that's kind of basically what she was saying which obviously ties into a lot of what malcolm says in this film uh, because it turns into, you know, who is the one making the film? Who gets to decide what kind of a film it's going to be just because the director is a certain way? How are they bringing their perspective? Is that necessarily bad or is it good? You know, which is an interesting conversation. It really, really is. Bear in mind, Zendaya produced this and she had, she had a very heavy hand in this production. So it's not just all Sam Levinson. It's just always weird when a white person says something that a person of color or a black person has been saying since forever and then they're lauded as interesting or saying something intelligent or something like that and that this is what that reminded me of was just like you're trying to be an ally i'm sure like whatever it is that you're saying you believe and maybe you're right with certain things it just feels weird that this is retrofitted into this film that is obviously very personal to you because someone dragged your film a couple years back because you made it as a man and you had no business doing that and now you're trying to fit it into this this context yeah which it's is like not if, your place like it just simply isn't right, it's his not place. your pl- <laughs> it's like if he was you know generally trying to 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 make some sort of commentary on this real thing that happens with black creators and you know non-white creators it's done a huge disservice by also his having to also fit in his personal grievance against Mm -hmm. a a white female critic yeah i don't know it that was really cringe for me yeah it just made me think of like for what it's worth it is interesting and it is creating a discussion which that's fucking film man Uh, i just hope that sam levinson stops trying to be an ally is he trying to be an ally or is he just taking up space like i don't know i i do appreciate the the sort of discourse or this has spawned like we mentioned before i think it was an act of baiting critics yeah i think the fact but i do think like the the discussion is more interesting than the film itself and you know within the film itself it's not like levinson is presenting these views as like wholly the the pure truth or whatever like marie acts as the counterpoint yeah or the voice of reason to malcolm's kind of unhinged ranting yeah like she points out his own privilege and hypocrisy yeah um, but she also laughs and eggs him on so it's kind of like ambiguous and i guess in that way more reflective of you know a genuine relationship between two people where it's like how much of this is like genuine sentiment and projection from levinson versus 
self-aware trolling a portion of it definitely is baiting at least but like i don't know enough about him or his work to be like okay his work is pretty earnest and sincere or it's you know he's definitely got some like meta stuff you know going on in a really playful or just like mischievous way yeah i mean i haven't seen assassination nation but i only know euphoria and i only know his Mm -hmm. two euphoria specials and this tracks and bear in mind like the Euphoria specials were also created in quarantine and they are also dialogue driven. And I really like both of them, especially the first episode, the Rue special that was released around Christmas time. It, yeah. it tracks in that I think if there's one thing about him, he is consistent in, in the style and the, and the things that he wants to explore. Whether it's like the ugliness of humanity with regards to like addiction, with regards to self-awareness or lack thereof, you know, how you hurt people around you that you love. This follows the same format. And I think like as a filmmaker, if we're talking about the style that he's following, he's keeping true to that. And that's the thing that I appreciated about it was mm-hmm. just like he knows what it is that he's trying to explore. He He does want to question things. He does want to pull things apart like malcolm is insufferable like as a character and i think that's intentional i, I don't think we're meant yeah, to empathize with I him so at too. any point like he is clearly like if he's there was ever a villain kind of like close to a monster yeah like if there was ever a villain in this he's the villain um and yeah. you know and marie is very much the person that she is like the honest sounding board for him but she's also not the not the heroine in this, but like definitely someone that is the good person in this relationship. Yeah, you walk away with more sympathy for her definitely. as a viewer for sure. Yeah, man, free Marie. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of a shame that like you know this the stuff about critics and the film industry and stuff. This is kind of what's going to get most of the mm-hmm. the airtime on on social media and critical assumption to this because, like I said, that does seem to be kind of like the red herring, the bait. What I found more interesting was the the idea of artist versus muse, you know, is, is framed through Malcolm and Marie's relationship. Yeah. You know, questions of like, what does an artist owe his muse? Like how much of his work is, yeah, can be basically credited to her. Um, and like, as a muse, like, should she have that credit and like the recognition or the monetary compensation Especially when, like, so much of a, a creative works, you know, framework or heart of it is drawn from someone's real life, you know, story and experience. Yeah. So, and it especially becomes tangled up because these two are presumably in love and in hate. And all of that I found much more interesting than the kind of navel gazy stuff about, you know, the industry and critics' reviews and stuff like that. Definitely, especially with regards to the creator. Like, they tell us all the time, like, you know, as writers, write what you know create especially like early filmmakers like malcolm is he is early in his career what he knows is not that interesting like marie reminds him like he's had a pretty cushy life you know like he's not really had struggles like that the the tough part is is like what is your responsibility to the people around you as a creator what are the ethical dilemmas that you should face otherwise you deal with the fallout which is like what we see happen in this film and more than anything, like, who are you to be telling this story? And I think, like, this is why there's a point in the movie where they, where Marie comes back to the LA Times critic coming back to a certain scene that she agrees with her on. And it's because, like, Malcolm is a mm. man. It's not even that he's, like, this film is about an addict. 
Not only is he a young woman, a a young woman who is an addict, right? And not only is he not an addict, he's also not a young woman. He's also not a woman. And this one scene Marie latches onto again. She's so smart. Like I love her, but she latches onto it because it's like you wouldn't have done that if you're a woman, and that just that it just changes it. It just changes the art. And that's, again, like you said, like that's the part that really interested me as well. Because yeah. that's the problem with Hollywood. Like that's a problem with creation. That's a problem with making art is um, there are ethical and moral questions that you should be asking yourself. And maybe that might, like people talk about art being boring as a result of that. I don't think so. It just becomes more authentic, which again, something that's that another is, some, word that that is another hates. word that comes out. Yeah, exactly. Like Malcolm talks about authenticity at the beginning and then Marie completely flips it in the second half. So yeah, I, this is what I mean. Like I think, like you said, Jenny, I think the second half is much stronger than the first. It is an hour and 40 minutes. So it's not like it's a short film by any means, but it, it flew by for me. It didn't feel like a slog too much. It's just, uh, yeah. there was maybe, I think it could have been cut about 20 minutes and it's mm-hmm. probably from the first half than more than yeah. the second half. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, these ideas aside, it is a little bit let down, in my opinion, by some of the writing, Mm. some of the acting. I'm going to single out John David Washington. Oh, no. I did not like his performance. Interesting. I mean, maybe the character was supposed to be literally this unhinged kind of egomaniac. But if you are trying to, you know, be real about, like, evoke this sense of realism and kind of paint these two people as like real people in a real relationship Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that happens is just so cartoonish i think that i just have a hard time seeing any real person at all do it like yeah the way he eats the mac and cheese when he's furious (laughs) or when he goes on his like eight minute long monologues and it just like crescendos 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 and then it's doesn't it didn't strike me as like anything like a real human being could actually be capable of okay so you haven't met film bros that's probably true yeah that's literally how they talk unfortunately especially if they're like if they're like waved on a bit of alcohol which he was bruv like there's a reason why you keep those fuckers at arm's length there's i think it was accurate and like completely unaware of just knowing when to shut the fuck up I thought he was good. I thought John David Washington was good by himself. I thought Zendaya was good by herself. I think these two together did not work. Different wavelengths, kind of. Zero chemistry. Yeah, just, it wasn't even the age. Because I know that that was like a whole fucking discussion when the fir- when the film was first announced. Yeah. I think the age difference made sense in this film. I don't think they had chemistry, bruv. Like, that was my problem with it. It was just like, I just wasn't buying it in terms of them being together. Well, I guess the main conclusion... We can all agree that Malcolm's character is the worst. And I think the proper conclusion, which some people, you know, have been saying online is like, honestly, Marie, either just like get out of there or, or kill this dude. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the only reasonable end to this. But she needs to just make her own film, dude. Yeah. I think Marie just need, Marie will be an incredible director. So let's get Marie some DGA credits, man. So that's it for Malcolm and Marie. I'm sure the discourse will continue to discourse with it. But until then, for Culture Notes, we are obviously going to talk about the fucking Golden Globe nominations. (laughs) So, as you know, if you haven't already seen, if you've been living under a rock, the Golden Globes 
released their nominations. I've no idea why the Golden Globes still exist. I feel like they've been the third rate award show since ever, but the Golden Globes are basically a body. The, the people that vote for them is just like a body of people that no one, it's like a black box. No one knows who the fuck they are, right? It's a uh, foreign journalists, essentially. A yeah. select group of foreign journalists. They aren't necessarily film people. They aren't necessarily industry or even like critics. It's, I'm not sure why this is our criteria. I'm sure there's a reason, but. Yeah. That is who the voting body is. So yeah. their tastes are often particular, unpredictable, I guess, shall we say? They are, uh, The Golden Globes have had a history of just being a little bit off with regards to whether or not they're on the money with, or like, they, you know, they've got their finger on the pulse of like what the critics like, what the viewers like. They've just always veered a little bit off. like i don't know that they could just be like you know i love this this emily in paris yeah so this is exactly so this is why i think this year especially has been met with some vitriolic hate <laughs> uh once people heard about it because there were just some things in here that just didn't make any sense so they do film and tv right so oscars mm-hmm. is uh film emmys tv they're both which already i think is like all right. <laughs> what? Anyway, so some of the things that didn't make sense were little things getting a whole bunch of nominations. A bunch of film, like Sia's film was in there getting a nomination. Oh. I don't think anyone's ever seen it. The Father, I think, that Anthony Hopkins movie. Haven't seen it. Don't know where to watch it. But the main hatred obviously came on the TV side of stuff because Emily in Paris was nominated in the comedy category. Unfortunately, what was completely missing from the drama category was I May Destroy You. And that's that's where everybody kicked off, basically. Everyone understands that if there was ever a TV show that was the TV show of 2020, it's Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. So the fact that it didn't even appear once in the nominations just felt like completely obtuse to a lot of people, including me. But at the same time, I personally feel... Like, I'm not going to look to the Golden Globes for having its finger on the pulse. The thing that interested me the most was what it said about the industry with regards to who is watching what, how are things getting nominated, especially during this time of COVID. Yeah, and this year is interesting, of course, because there weren't a lot of movies. There was some TV, but primarily, like, the stuff that got the attention was the stuff that people were binging at home during the pandemic and hate tweeting about. There was a lot of that going on in regards to Emily in Paris and stuff like that. And for these other shows, like I May Destroy You, I don't know. It's like, the question is, did any of these voting bodies, did they actually see this stuff? Did they just pay attention to what was on social media trending and it like brings to mind so so a tv writer danny fernandez you know there's a tweet where essentially she said i'm i'm begging you to stop hate binging shows it does affect the rest of us um meaning like tv film the actual industry mm-hmm. and it affects the notes we get from studios i'm not even kidding yeah <laughs> um, and that's the fucking problem <laughs> yeah that's the problem because they're obviously, especially Netflix being the biggest culprit for this, of ambient TV shows, as they're now calling it. I think the Times termed it that way. And I think on The Watch, like Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, they call it laundry folding TV, oh, where yeah. you can basically watch it when you're doing something else. You can watch it while you're scrolling through your phone, which I'm sure, especially now during the pandemic, everyone is doing. Uh, everyone's doing that. Yeah. yeah. So this is the problem with that, because I think... We've gotten used to that format now as viewers. 
And then we obviously have favorites from that. Like there are things that we have now learned to select and cherry pick out of those type of shows like that, where we like the characters or we, we or where we latch onto a certain plot point or a certain chemistry of a, a, a yeah. couple or whatever it might be. And then everything else kind of falls by the wayside. And obviously because we're so used to these types of TV shows now, a lot of people will watch together and then talk about it on social media, which is kind of what happened with Emily in Paris. A lot of people were just like, I'm going to start watching this. I fucking hate it. Oh, my God. And then people want to watch that also because they're like, oh, my God, why do you hate it? Let's hate it together, yeah, which the is collective experience, the collective experience of the hate watch. The thing about the hate watch is just like it does affect how people see popularity. It does affect how studio executives decide to roll out a pilot or roll out a series or it do- and it do- also does affect what gets cancelled man and that's the- that's the fucking batshit thing about it is that shows like Emily and Paris are getting award nominations and they are affecting how studio executives decide to greenlight shows but it also affects like if that one has to be greenlit then it might mean that something else gets chopped and you don't know what that thing is going to be you don't know what's going to go like I'm right. still, like, I'm, this is a world of finite resources. Like definitely. you're not. This is a cold hard reality. Yep. Like of course you might say like, well, anyone can watch anything they want. That's a prerogative. Sure, sure. whatever. But it does have real life, you know, re- repercussions, especially yeah. for people who are actually making this stuff. And and for people that are like, I want to be good at what I do. You know, like if you're a writer that's like on staff or like whatever it might be, you want to make something that is interesting, that moves people. You don't want to make fucking filler episodes. Wait, did you see the the Guardian, the Guardian op-ed by an Emily in Paris writer who was like, I'm an Emily in Paris writer. I (laughs) wish that I may destroy you got the nomination. (laughs) Yeah. Which is just like, it's so funny. And also now... I mean, I may destroy you. It is definitely snubbed, but also it's now becoming this thing where it's like the new Get Out. Yeah, where you know, perfectly nice, you know, liberals. They're like, yeah, I thought I may destroy you was was robbed, and yeah, I'm gonna tell you just how much in as loud a voice as I possibly can. Yeah, and and it's also it doesn't like it doesn't actually matter. Because I May Destroy You's influence on the viewers that watch that TV show is worth its weight in gold. Heavier than any statue that it can ever fucking win. That's the whole point. Like, TV writers don't do it so that they get the awards. It's obviously fucking nice, because then they get to go do whatever they want the next time around. Like, it just gives them a big... It it can, like, have some effect on careers and money and stuff, which is, again... The unfortunate thing. Definitely. Um, like, But when it comes down to it, I'm sure if you were to ask Michaela Cole, like, hey, do you feel like you fulfilled whatever it was that you were trying to do with regards to, like, with regards to your art? I'm sure by now she would be like, yeah. Like, the reception has been incredible. Everyone has been talking to me about how much it's, it's affected them. Yeah, like, that's the most important thing. It's just, it, like, with regards to making something and putting it out there, yeah, it's it's like you said it's about finite resources and I like I just I just want everyone to do better and make better selections. So, let's all mobilize and watch better TV, <laughs> please. Okay, that is our collective action. <laughs> yes. Great. So, those are culture notes and this is what we've been watching. Um as always, if you think we should check anything out, let us know where at criticismisdead at gmail.com um, or Twitter, Instagram, whatever. 
Uh, subscribe to our Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com. Hell yeah, best Substack ever. <laughs> We're biased, but thank you. I'm um, not. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm neutral. You are a neutral party. Yeah. You trusted. <laughs> um, thank you so much, everyone who has been rating and reviewing. Uh, love you, and please love you doing so it. much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Um, great. I guess that's it. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Jijong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.